Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where leading authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and I'm delighted to be joined by a best-selling author who's just released his new novel, Love is Blind. It's William Boyd. Hello, William. Hello. Very pleased to be here. I'm super excited to be here. Now, you're best known, William, for writing novels which span continents and timescales such as Any Human Heart, of course, which I know you receive more letters from than any other novel that you've written. But as well as composing your own works, you've had time to write a James Bond novel and also a fictional biography of David Bowie. I had a curious relationship with David Bowie in the late 90s and the early 2000s. We were both on the editorial board of this art magazine, so it had nothing to do with David Bowie rock icon. We had this strange relationship around a book. He was the publisher of this little book, Nat Tate, an American artist, and he actually wrote the blurb for it. I mean, how cool is that? How did you find him? He was delightful, but kind of intense, I would say. He was always wanted to talk quite seriously about art, and you might have a hangover, and the last thing you wanted to do was start talking about, you know, is, is Rembrandt better than Tintoretto? Kind of had a hunger for knowledge. And I think because he was a, an autodidact, you know, because he was learning himself and teaching himself, he used these opportunities to kind of have a Q&A session almost. So, but, you know, I saw him in New York, and he was uh, great to hang out with as well. Look, let's get into the objects that you brought today. A beach pebble from Biarritz and a Derringer gun. I don't have any idea what that is. I hope I pronounced it right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Derringer. But before we have a look at the first of these objects, can you give us a quick synopsis of Love is Blind? It's all there in the title, in a way. And the subtitle is The Rapture of Brodie Moncur. And Brodie Moncur is a young Scottish piano tuner. And we follow this obsessive love he develops for a, a Russian opera singer called Lika Bloom. And he is enraptured by her. And that kind of blind love, if you like, drives him. It is a kind of love story set at the, the end of the 19th century and going just into the 20th century with the background of classical music because Lika Bloom is an opera singer. She's the mistress of a piano virtuoso called John Kilbaron and thereby hangs all the problems when Brodie falls headlong in love with her. It starts with, in your mind, before you commit to paper, this idea of the emotional response to music. He's experiencing this phenomenon of certain pieces of music, classical music, rock music, show tunes, bluegrass, where I could be doing something completely banal and the music be playing and suddenly I'd feel a kind of welling up, just a sense of profound emotion. And I could play the piece of music again and the same effect would happen. And I began to wonder if there was some sequence of notes or some sequence of chords or something going on in the music that triggered this effect because it had no autobiographical resonance. It wasn't like the music that was playing when I met my wife sort of thing. So it was purely and simply the effect of music on me. And so I went to ask a composer friend of mine if he could analyse what was going on, and he did analyse it, I think, very successfully. And then I had this idea, I said, what if you wrote a piece of music like that that made people cry and somebody stole it? 
And that was the beginning of the novel. And then I invented the characters, the setting, the background, etc., etc. And you construct the ending where you want the novel to end and then work backwards? What I do is uh, there are two distinct periods. It takes me about three years to write a novel and about two years are spent figuring it out. And this is my method. It's not for everybody, but um, it works. It's not Salman Rushdie's. I know that for a fact. It's not uh, not Ian McEwan's. I I, I know it's uh, some writers just start writing, wait to see if the day-by-day inspiration will carry them through to the end. But I think that's how novels get abandoned when the inspiration dries up. So I spend a long time figuring it out and I fill notebooks and I travel and I buy books and think about it and make all my mistakes, if you like, before I start writing. And then I write not particularly fast, but with a kind of confidence. And that takes me about nine months to a year. So that's my rhythm, if you like, of writing novels. I've never abandoned a novel and I'm always quite pleased with my novels because they're sort of the book I wanted to write. It's interesting you use the word rhythm because what you described is pretty much like a DJ set. You have the big track that you want to start your set with. You know the track that you want to end your set with and put your hands in the air and say thank you everybody and drop the mic. And then you build the set accordingly. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, That's what it, Norman Cook told me about his DJs. It may be absolutely true. And I think for writers, and I always give this advice to young writers, you know, they say, I've got this great idea for a novel, and they start telling me about it. And I always say, how does it end? A good ending will save a mediocre novel, but a bad ending will sink a good novel. So it's very, very important, the ending. Let's get back to Brody Moncur and this first object, which is a piano tuner's tuning hammer. I thought this was something to kind of change... It's called a hammer, but actually it's a, a kind of spanner, yes. basically. Yeah. It's to tighten and loosen the strings of a piano. What's the handle made of? It's made of wood. This is made of wood. It's a really dark, dark wood. wood. It's got a square kind of insert, and you, that's what you slip over the nut that keeps the tension of the strings, and the strings are at incredible tension in a piano. So this, the tiniest adjustment of, of that string tension is how you effectively tune a piano. So this is the, the fundamental implement. And because Brody is a piano tuner, deluxe, I thought this was a perfect object to, to bring along to kind of symbolise that. So then in those two years of preparation, what lengths did you have to go to to discover this art of the piano tuner? Well, I had to go to great lengths. My great good fortune was that through a connection of mutual friends, I was introduced to the head piano tuner at the Royal Academy of Music, a wonderful man called Clive Ackroyd. And Clive actually allowed me to pick his brains ruthlessly. And he told me some of his dark arts. I couldn't have written this novel without his help. Now, an important strand of this book is a folk song that Brody uses when tuning. Let's hear an extract of that now. Findlay Lanhire's challenge stood there, opened, ready. Brody enjoyed being in empty theatres. He had fine-tuned the Shannon that morning, but just to ensure all was in order, he sat down and, to the empty seats, played the little ditty that he used to check all was well as far as the tuning was concerned. It was a folk song that he remembered his mother used to sing to him, and he had adapted and embellished the simple melody so that every octave and almost every note was played. The Shannon was perfectly tuned, and he noted once again how his little artifices were working smoothly. 
The keys in the treble register were incredibly light. The slightest touch made the notes sound truly. He had glued thin strips of lead below the front of the keys, out of sight, a measure that had reduced the upweight to less than half an ounce, a third less than was normal. Findlay Lanhire would have been proud. That was Love is Blind by my guest William Boyd and read by Roy McMillan. It's fascinating that you went to such lengths. Do you sometimes feel as though, good grief, I'm going to disappear down the rabbit hole? I write realistic novels and all my novels, 15 of them, are in a way quite different one from another. And the great challenge if you're writing a realistic novel is to make that world of the novel seem utterly authentic, utterly plausible. And so you'll go to any lengths to bring that about. I wrote a novel called Blue Afternoon, which is set in the Philippines in 1902 during the war between America and the Filipino rebels. All the information was in America and so I had to hire a researcher, this was back in the 90s, to find stuff for me. And so without him, I wouldn't have been able to write this novel. But, you know, and I you said, didn't I, go to the Philippines, I did didn't you? I didn't go. There was no, no point because oh. Manila was the second most bombed city in World War II, apparently. And so there's no trace of old Manila there, apart from the few broken down walls. So I had to kind of travel in time. And I would say to him, like, can you find me a street map of Manila in 1902? And, you know, hey, presto, three weeks later, he found one. So... That's the effort you make to get the world of your novel you know, living and breathing and it's what makes the world of your novel come alive to the reader. Now let's uh, move on. You've got a small pamphlet called a, a Margarita? I know a Margarita is something else. Yes, it's called Stevenson Margarita and it's a 19th century pamphlet written after the death of Robert Louis Stevenson. And um, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, smoked for Scotland. Uh, he, was a, he was an 80-a-day man. A little pamphlet written by a friend of his who knew his smoking habits. And Margarita is a blend of tobacco that Stevenson liked. It's an American blend. And he got a taste for it and used to buy it in huge quantities so he could travel the world with a supply of uh, margarita with him. And Brody uh, smokes. Brody smokes them. That's yeah. a homage to, um, mm. to Stevenson. But Brody's a heavy smoker as well. Um, but Stevenson, when he, when he ran out of margarita, it was a terrible situation until the next package arrived. He would search the pockets of all his coats and jackets in the hope that a few shreds were l lying there. And he then could gather them together and make a very thin roll-up because they were all roll-up cigarettes and, and, and he smoked in those days. He rolled his own. So this little book, the role of this particular tobacco, plays a significant part in the novel. Is your house full of such things? Yes, I have, I'm a, a bibliomane. You know, I have far too many books. When I write a novel, I like to accumulate a little library of books that serve that particular novel and I stack them on the floor of my study so I can just reach for them if I want them. And depending on the novel and its scale, sometimes it can, there can be 50 books there, sometimes there can be 250 books there. Are you a hoarder, William Boyd? Not of anything else apart from books, I would say. Um, books and maybe paintings. I can't get rid of paintings. So I have a lot of paintings and drawings stacked up against the wall where they can't be seen but I can't bring myself to get rid of them. But otherwise, I think I'm quite a sort of... I'm quite cheap to run, actually. <laughs> <laughs> if we were to come into your house, then, considering 
how organised you must be in order to prep to start writing. Would it be all very neatly organised? Is there a system to where all these books are, alphabetical order, chronology... Not really. I mean, it's sort of organised. You know, I have one room that's full of non-fiction and I have one room that's full of fiction. And in my study, I have about five or six current piles of books that are to do with various projects that I'm working on, you know, stacked on the floor, but, you know, discrete one from the other. So I could say, well, that's about this film I'm writing and that's about this TV series I'm writing. This is for my next novel. So it's sort of organised, but it doesn't look immaculate. It looks like a shambles, but I, I, I can make my way through it. Literary chaos theory mm. of yes, sorts. Yes, exactly. Um, Love is Blind, I mean, is set at the turn of the century and that's a, a very rich time for some literary classics. I mean, the picture of uh, Dorian Gray, The Island of Dr Moreau and Sherlock Holmes... Is there any literature of that time that was a reference point for Love is Blind? Chekhov actually makes an appearance in the novel, but not by name, but you, if, you, if you know anything about him, you, you, you'll recognise him. Oh, okay. Brody meets him in Nice in the south of France. And same with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, because there's, there's a lot of Scottish literature in the, in the background of this, um, themes of Scottish literature. In Stevenson, of course... Uh, developed so many of these sort of Scottish myths. You think particularly of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. But they're the two writers that particularly haunt this novel, I would say. You've said this is your most Scottish novel. Yes, I think so. Not just because it starts in Scotland and because the protagonist is, is a Scot. And it's also, in a way, very like Robert Louis Stevenson's life. And he was born in Edinburgh and then left Scotland, as many Scots do, and become part of the Scottish diaspora. And Robert Louis Stevenson went to America, he lived in England, he wound up in Samoa, of all places. That's where he died. And so that theme of leaving your homeland and, and going on a kind of long journey is very much the story of Love is Blind, that happens to Brodie. I'm a similar type of Scot, except I didn't. I wasn't born in Scotland. I was born in West Africa and grew up there. So in Accra, I'm I, I, in, in Ghana, yes, mm. and Nigeria, and so I'm very conscious now as I'm getting older and I look back at my life and see what you know made me the writer I am. Certain factors, you know, are unignorable, such as the fact that I, I am a Scot, but I, I'm a kind of Afro-Scot, and I think that's shaped me. Massively. I'm looking over at the side of the desk where you're sitting and I see this picture of something a little bit intimidating. And yes, this, this is, is Brody a... and his duel and what yes. he may have been holding. It's a picture of a Derringer. And Derringer is, a, in a way, a single or double-shot, tiny gun. It, sometimes it's... I've seen Derringers that are barely three inches long. And they're, they're often known as hotel guns because they're very easily concealed. Invented by a man called John Derringer. A Derringer plays a huge part in the novel. It also links up with Anton Chekhov, who had this curious rule. He said if, if a gun appears in Act 1 of a play, it, it has to be used before the Act 5 arrives. And it's a, it's a, a rule of the theatre known as Chekhov's gun. And so... The Derringer is introduced innocently early in the novel and then comes to play a very significant part later on. They were meant to be concealed about the person. If you're a woman, you could carry it in your 
handbag very easily, for example. Or you, if you were a man, you could almost tuck it into your sock. You know, it's a, it's, it was a tiny gun that fired two bullets and, you know, might save your life. For a spy rather than a soldier. Yes, but, you know... Um, if you were disarmed and you still had your Derringer tucked into your sock, <laughs> you might be able to escape. So it's an interesting little weapon of its time, very 19th century. Uh, I don't think anybody uses a Derringer now. Very popular with women who might feel they were in danger. They, they had their own little uh, tiny gun they could fire. Wow. Like having a <laughs> canister of CS gas or yes, pepper exactly. spray. Pepper, yes, exactly, the pepper spray yeah. of the 19th century. It's a fascinating idea, this, that you would take honour to that length. It sort of died out by World War I. And it's, it's, you know, there, are, there are jewels in, in many works of literature. There's a, um, a, for example, there's a jewel in, in Robert Louis Stevenson's novel The Master of Ballantrae. Chekhov wrote a short story called The Duel. There's a duel in... War and Peace, Russian literature in particular. Pushkin um, died. Pushkin died in the duel. Um, it's a motif that runs through uh, a lot of 19th century literature. And the, there's a wonderful novel called The Radetzky March, written by an Austrian writer called Joseph Roth, which has a duel in 1914, which I suspect is the last duel in world literature. I wonder how that idea of masculinity manifests itself in 2018. Because we haven't lost the feelings. No, and maybe it's um, you know the, the punch up in the car park is <laughs> is the answer. You'd, you know, uh, you'd hate to think that yeah. that's what it is now—a yeah. punch up in a car park. Yeah, see it's the modern mate. form of dueling. You know, um, yes. uh, but uh, no, it's um, no. Now you, I suppose you could you could sue somebody if you wanted. Oh, gosh, that's even worse. <laughs> I think in many ways, right? Litigation is yes, the new that's form, right. form of dueling. Choose your lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go to Biarritz because that's where part of the action is. And you have a pebble. This is a, a large white pebble. must weigh half a pound. It's very smooth. Uh, I, I picked off the beach at Biarritz. I go to Biarritz a lot. I must have been there 20 times over the years. And I've put it in quite a few novels, funny enough. It's, this is the third novel I think I've set scenes in Biarritz and it was a, it's an amazing sort of resort town down on the Spanish border on the Atlantic in the 19th century it was very fashionable and lots of uh, European royalty would have their holidays there uh, Queen Victoria went there Edward VII went there um, and uh, there's an incredible hotel called the Palais Hotel which is like the Ritz on the sea Everybody stayed there from, you know, Diaghilev to Stravinsky to Frank Sinatra, etc., etc. It's a, an amazing, amazing hotel. And we have a, a house in France which is not two hours' drive from Biarritz, so whenever you feel like the ocean, because it's a huge surf and a lot of surfing goes on, there's no better place than Biarritz. And, interestingly, um, Chekhov went there because of his tuberculosis. He had to leave Russia in the winter, it seemed to me that on Brody's journey across Europe, all the places he goes to are places I know or have visited. Some I know very well, like Biarritz and Paris and Nice. Um, some I know less well, like St. Petersburg and Trieste. Um, but I have visited them all, and they all have their own particular associations, their own particular allure. Outside of 
writing, I was conscious that when you were talking about the amount of books and then the screenplays and then the TV series, etc., etc., I thought, where is the space in this man's life to do anything but? Or is it a life consumed by words and you're happy with that? Uh, I think it is. I mean, I I probably work every single day on something or other, um, seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year. And, you know, I should be so lucky, I reckon. Again, to quote Chekhov, he was asked, what do you want out of life? And he said, all I want to be is a free artist. And actually to be a free artist is incredibly difficult to only make the art you want to make. So in a way, that's what I sort of strive for, and I'm hyper-conscious how lucky I am. And so I do work hard, but that's a very that's very true of, I think, British literary culture. I think we, we all are quite prolific. Um, we work in many different media. I relish the solitariness of writing a novel, but I also really enjoy collaborating. So the work I do in the theatre or on film and television, and many of my friends are actors or directors rather than writers, is another pleasure. So it's not a nine-to-five job, but actually it doesn't matter. You're just quite happy to be consumed by it. Of course, I do all the things that other people do, you know, go on holiday, you know, go shopping, go to the movies, etc., etc. See friends, pebbles, steal pebbles off beaches. Yeah. The, the main business of, of my life is writing or thinking about writing, and I have no complaints. While reading Love is Blind, the attention to detail, the building up of people's lives, the, ty- the minutiae of who they are and what they are. And I wondered whether when you write so much detail in, are you constructing that world for me, the reader? Are you constructing that world primarily for you and then I'm invited into it? No, I think I'm constructing it for the reader. And particularly if you're writing about the past or the recent past, I have a kind of credo I pinched from a Serbian writer called Danilo Kish where he says the single duty of the novelist is to make the world he creates seem absolutely real. And then he goes on to say, and any means to this end is justified. Because I'm a realistic novelist, if I was a painter, I'd be a figurative painter, not an abstract painter. And if I'm writing about a world that's strange, if I'm writing about a a young woman scientist studying chimpanzees in the wild in Central Africa, you know, I have to make that, that world vivid and tactile and and have to make the reader savour and relish it and understand it. And so it is very much for the reader. It's uh, for the reader to enter the, the fictitious world you've created, to suspend his or her disbelief and to be utterly immersed and seduced by the reality of that world. So you sort of forget that you're reading a novel written by some bloke who lives in London. I asked this question of Sebastian Fawkes and prior to Love is Blind, have you ever had an emotional reaction yourself to killing off a character where you yourself have perhaps gone to your wife and gone, right, I've got... And Sebastian Fawkes said that he went to his wife and said, he's gone. Yes, I had the same effect, particularly with Any Human Heart and the character of Logan Mount Stewart. It was a very long novel and you follow his life from being a schoolboy to being a, a man in his 80s. And, of course, I knew Logan was going to die, and I knew exactly how he was going to die. And I remember coming down the stairs and saying to my wife, Susan, Logan has gone. 
And I had a sort of slight moment of not emotion so much as a kind of sense of an, an ending, as if I was relaying the death of a relative or a close friend because I'd been living with him for three years and I had I had engineered his departure from, from this world. And it was just a, an odd moment which I recognised and then went back and corrected the lines and got on with the, the novel. But I did register that sense of a fictitious life coming to an end but having a kind of strange moment of sadness. What's next? I'm in this curious limbo period where I'm thinking up my next novels. A quarter of my brain is occupied with pondering. I know what it's going to be, I know when it's going to be set and where it's going to be set. I'm researching it. The ending? Not quite got the ending yet. That's going on, but in the the meantime, I've just finished writing a a long-form television series which is set in Berlin, in 1961, before the Berlin Wall goes up, which is called Spy City. I think, you know, knock on wood, we're about to start casting it and it will be shot in the spring of next year. Do you go on set? I will go on set, yes, I do. I'm actually an executive producer of it as well, because it's completely my idea, you know. Um, And um, it's it's a co-production of, you know, uh, German, American, UK... And uh, we shall see, but that's been occupying me while now the bit of my brain is thinking of my next novel. And um, a one-man tour? I'm going to six cities and towns with a kind of one-man show uh, called The Many Fictions of William Boyd, uh, which is a a 90-minute monologue of of my uh, adventures in the writing game and things that have happened to me and people I've met. So it's kind of anecdotal free association with images and music. Smoking and jacket, armchair, no, no, it's, uh, a glass uh, no, of brandy. No, no, I, I, I roam the stage with a Madonna mic um, and no script. No dance moves. Uh, and no dance moves. And I'm actually tired of going to literary festivals and this is a way of avoiding going to literary festivals. We'll see how it goes. It may finish me off. Um, if it works, then it's, that's a, it's a brilliant way of saying, hey, I've got a new book out. Um, if it doesn't... Um, That'll be that. I'll be back at the Literary Festival circuit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it will work. I'm sure it will work. Maybe if it doesn't work, you can remix it a bit and include some dancing for the next time you can. Look, you can't have grown up in West Africa and not got the rhythm of life going through. Oh, yeah, I love love African music. I listen to it all the time. The the spirit of Felakuti flowing through William Boyd. Um, Thank you, William. It's been a real pleasure. No, me too. Thanks very much. If you'd hated it, would we have had to have had a duel? (laughs) Out now from Penguin Random House Audio. Demon Voices, written and read by Philip Pullman. In over 30 essays, written over 20 years and recorded by the author himself at his home city of Oxford, one of the world's great storytellers meditates on the art of storytelling. Warm, engaging and often amusing, this is a collection of writing which offers thoughts on a wide variety of topics, including the origin and composition of Philip's own stories, the craft of writing and the storytellers who have meant the most to Philip. Of course, there are several views about the relationship between art and the world, with at one end of the spectrum the Soviet idea that the writer is the engineer of human souls, that art has a social function and had better damn well produce what the state needs, and at the other end, the declaration of Oscar Wilde that there is no such thing as a good book or a bad book, 
Books are well written or badly written, that is all, and all art is quite useless. The audiobook is available now from all audiobook retailers.